0: morning. It's great to be with you this morning and actually when I say it's great to see you it is great to see you and it's wonderful to be here. Church on the patio. Who would have thunk but the Lord provides and this is going to be just a great way for us to be together for a while. So we continue to pray that we will overcome as a nation, as a globe, the challenges that we face together with this pandemic and the havoc that it is wreaking, not only on people's lives, our global economy, but also on the way we even live as people today in this world. And so we'll face those challenges together in the Lord And that's the way it has been, not only with the people of God that we read of in the Old Testament, but the new people of God in Jesus Christ. This morning, we bring our series in the book of Esther to a close. And uh, we're going to end with Xerxes or Akashverosh. I don't know if I'm going to miss saying that at all, but it's uh, it's a pretty slippery thing to say. Akash varosh. And we're going to not only look at the king, but in a sense, uh, we're going to look at the book of Esther and uh, the overall thrust of the book of Esther. I want us to return to a remarkable moment in the book that. We surveyed on the very first Sunday that we looked at Esther. And this remarkable moment is in Esther chapter 7, verses 2 through 9. We're going to particularly focus on verse 5. But let me begin reading at verse 2. So if you have your Bible before you and open and you're in chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. This is the English Standard Version. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, if we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Is this true? How is this possible? The king and Haman raised a toast to this decree, to this agreed destruction back in chapter 3 and here it is the king expresses genuine surprise it's like he's totally in the dark and he was very much a part of it in fact Haman brazenly bribed the king and yet here he is I believe genuinely shocked at what he's hearing. Let's return to verse four and look at it closely. The translations vary a little, but what we need to appreciate is very clear in the Hebrew. Esther compares she and her people being annihilated And what is clear here, she compares that with being enslaved. There's a huge difference. And it was common in in, in antiquity to subdue a people and, in effect, uh, to destroy them by enslaving them. And Esther says, if. If you had enslaved us, I wouldn't have even mentioned it. I wouldn't have even bothered you. But you've done more than enslave us. You, on the 13th of Adar, you are going to annihilate us. And this is what shocks the king. And why does it shock him? Because if we go back to chapter 3, When Haman brought the proposal to the king, Haman used a different word. In verse 9, he uses azar and, excuse me, uses avad and in verse 13, he uses shamad. These are very different notions. One just speaks of a of a loss, often of a financial or property loss. And they would be a loss. An entire people within his empire would be lost. And uh, Haman brings him 10,000 talents to offset that loss. Or perhaps he expects to recoup it when he sells or enslaves the people but in verse uh, 30 th- 13 when Haman sends out his edict and it's sent it's written and it's sent throughout the empire in the authority and in the name of the king he uses the the word shamad annihilate so it's true, the king hears this for the first time and he's truly shocked. But there's an illusion here too that I should point out that goes back to 1 Kings. I don't want us to miss this. 1 Kings 21 verse eight, because when the edict was sent out in the authority of the king, it is an echo. Of 1 Kings 21 8, where Ahab goes to Naboth. Naboth owns a vineyard that Ahab the king wants. It's right next to his palace. He says, Naboth, sell me this land. I'll give you the money, or I'll give you a better vineyard in, in exchange. And Naboth says, uh, Says no, he says, I I can't sell my father's inheritance. I can't give you or sell to you or trade to you what is my father's inheritance. So Ahab is very disappointed. He goes home and he mopes, uh, he turns his face to the wall. Uh, he lays down, and and he's very very sad. And he, the queen comes in, Jezebel, and she says, uh, "Why are you so sad, Ahab?" He says, "Well, Naboth, uh, he wouldn't sell me his land. In fact, he actually put it like this. He said to Jezebel, he says, uh, he says, I offered Naboth." a better vineyard for his vineyard, which is adjacent. He says, I offered a better vineyard or a, a good price on the land. And uh, Jezebel says, uh, well, what happened? And he says, uh, you know, he wouldn't sell it to me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't give it to me. And Jezebel says, uh, don't worry, honey, I'll take care of this. I'll get you that property. And she, we're told in verse eight of chapter twenty-one, in the name it, here is the same wording that Hamath issued the decree in the in the name, authority, signet ring, etc. of of Xerxes. Jezebel sends out letters to certain people in the empire, and basically to cut the story story rather sh- short. Uh, she has Naboth killed so that Ahab can get the land. And the prophet, Elijah, confronts Ahab and basically says, you're not off the hook because Jezebel did that. And the Lord took out Jezebel. But Elijah says to Ahab, you're still on the hook because Whatever happens under your authority, you remain responsible for, whether you did it with your hand or not. So we have a clear picture of an irresponsible king here in verse 4 when he, he shows this total shock. Of course, he did not know that he was assigning his queen or even the Jews by name, but he didn't realize that these people were going to be annihilated, wiped out in a ruthless sort of way. He's clueless. And that is a huge irony in the book of Esther that we've become accustomed to. It's something we've grown to expect, irony. The king says one thing, And we know what he means, but there's another meaning to it because of who he is, his character, and what's going on around him. Everyone's life and fate depends on the rule of Xerxes, yet he depends fully on advisors, even what we could call an advisor de jure. There are so many advisors throughout the book. And all the advisors, of course, have to please the king, as do the people who are dependent upon him. And yet never once does the king himself make a decision. In fact, right here in this story is one of the highlight ironies of the book. Because even when the king, who is upset, he's so angry At realizing that Haman, his most trusted aide, has violated that trust and gone behind his back. And Haman knows this. That's why he doesn't beg mercy of the king, but he begs it of the queen. While the king's out in the garden fuming, he comes back in. He sees Haman, and he misunderstands the situation. Haman's begging for his life, but the king thinks he's making a move on Esther. He's infuriated even more and he says, How can you do this? You not only betray my trust behind my back, you make a move on my wife. And so they put a cover over his face, but who is it that tells the king what to do? An aide. The king is advised on what to do with Haman by a servant. He's hung, of course, for something he didn't even do. Of all the crimes and misdemeanors in the whole book that Haman commits, this is the one time we know he's innocent. He really was begging for his life. He wasn't making a move on Esther. And the king entirely misunderstands the situation. Even if he does the right thing, finally, it's by mistake. Who is the protagonist? Who is the main character in the book of Esther? It's Xerxes. The book begins with him. Haman doesn't appear. He doesn't even come on the scene till what is chapter 3. Esther and Mordecai don't even come on the scene until the middle of chapter 2. The king opens the book. He closes the book. In every chapter, he is a presence, a primary presence, if not in a speaking role, in a presence of importance role. His name, Akashvarosh, occurs 30 times in the book of Esther, compared with Esther's name 55 times and Mordecai's 58. But get this, the king's title, the very word king, occurs 200 times in the book of Esther. In fact, the characters of the word king in Hebrew, M-L-K for Malach, occurs 250 plus times. It's amazing. The king is ever-present. In fact, in this story, nothing can be done in the kingdom without the king's permission. Everything depends on the king's word. Xerxes is the main character. All the main characters have pairings, Mordecai and Haman, Esther and Vashti, but there's no pairing for the king. Only the king, only Xerxes does not have a match. And yet, he does. I can't imagine a reader getting even to this point in the story, and certainly by the end, to begin to see that Xerxes' absolute power is meant to occupy the role of God that is found in all the other writings of the Old Testament and Bible. Anyone familiar with the biblical world, anyone familiar with God's word would begin to sense, this this guy's in the place of God. the pivotal importance of the king becomes ironic. It's not what we expect. And what we expect of a ruler is not what we get. We get an anti-ruler. We get a reverse king figure. In fact, we start to see in our own minds a reverse king, a king that is not Xerxes, the king that we would expect. And in our minds, we can begin to see an unseen ruler or an unseen ruler already is there creating the irony that we observe and feel with King Xerxes. Because it's like, it's not supposed to be this way. This isn't what a king does. This isn't a responsible leader or ruler or overseer. In fact, the world of Esther that we get here in the book, the kingdom... Of Xerxes. You think, man, I don't know if I could live in such a fickle, arbitrary world in which there's no order. And so it is. Xerxes is the anti king, and the reverse king is God. The reverse king, the one that we don't see, is the one whom we begin to realize is responsible for all the reverses that are occurring. All of the reverses that we experienced, the, the miraculous reverses, the unexpected reverses, the reverses that take us by surprise, that set the world right. Xerxes is the main character in the book, but he's not the main character of the book. My pastor told me everything I learned. You I remember the words so clearly. He says, everything I learned in ministry, I learned from. And then he told me his pastor's name. Uh, he went from working in LA, as a kind of a a, a a city worker, working with electric uh, electrical supply, and he went back. He came to Christ. He went back to school. He got trained. His first job was with this pastor, and he he would say to me, "Everything I learned, I learned from that pastor." And then he told me, "I did everything just the opposite of what he did." because what he was describing was a pastor who did everything in a way that was harmful, that fouled things up, that blundered things, that made a mess of things, and largely it was because of his folly, and his folly was driven by his selfishness. Some people think that when you get into a position of leadership, and we all have positions of leadership, Some of us grow up, and our first position of leadership may be in a job, but it often becomes being a parent. And if we're selfish and full of folly or foolishness, we end up ruling like a Xerxes or like the pastor that my pastor talked about. Sometimes there are reverse figures I'll be real honest with you, there were things about my father I said, I will never do things like that. I will be the opposite of him. Strange motivations in our lives sometimes come from negative examples. And sometimes they're the most powerful examples of what is true and what is real. And so it is here, I just want to ask one additional question about Xerxes, about his figure, and about what the book of Esther seems to be causing us to see through this anti-figure, if you will. At whose gate does Mordecai sit? The king's gate. It happens again and again, and strikingly, it's... There in chapter 6 verse 12 that Mordecai is elevated to a it's like king for a day. He's paraded about the city. Haman must make an announcement. This is what is done for the man that the king wishes or desires to honor and he's treated like a king. But then Mordecai goes right back. It just say you would think after all of that, you know? You you just don't go back to where you were, but he does. He's the same man the next day that he was the day before. But it is there that everything seems to happen for Mordecai. And I begin to question in my mind, is this word king, is it to be understood with a small K or a capital K? Whose gate, who is the king that Mordecai sits at? I think that we are to see kind of a double meaning when we read Mordecai sits at the king's gate. That is the seat, if you will, that is the location that Mordecai goes to hear from God, to commune with God, to serve God, to get refreshed with God. It is from there that Mordecai learns things that no one else in the story of Esther knows. It's there that Mordecai gains perspective. It's there that he gets refreshed. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. It is at the king's entrance that he goes clothed in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. Do you realize that in Daniel 9, 3, as well as in Isaiah, it is in such contexts as those that people Are in the presence of the Lord, in humility before the Lord, in sackcloth and ashes. In fact, in Daniel 9.3, Daniel says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes. The king and Haman, they're open books, but not Mordecai. He is the one figure that we don't know what to expect. He cannot be an ironic figure because we don't know what to expect of him except that he increasingly, and therefore even by the end of the book, and therefore always is a predictable, stable character. He's a man you can trust. He's he's a person you can depend on. He's a person that you can look to and do you know who looks to him and depends on him and trusts him? Esther, the heroine, if you will, of the book. You see, we are to look to a Mordecai. And who does Mordecai look to and trust? Where does his stability and strength, where does his encouragement, his confidence, his hope come from? It comes from the Lord, that anti-king or king in reverse from Xerxes, the king that we look to for stability when we can't see it in the ruler of this book, who has command and control and oversight, whose word everybody's life depends upon. I've lived under 12 presidents. President Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and President Trump, 12 presidents, some two terms. I've seen things come and go. I've seen trials in my lifetime and in our country that caused us to think that Jesus is coming now. We're to live that way each and every day. But to really live as if Jesus is coming now means that we have to sit at the king's gate like Mordecai. Because it's there that we're going to find the resources, the faith and the vision that we see Mordecai invest in Esther in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. Sit at the king's gate. I think a lot of us sometimes are sitting a lot of different places, taking up a position in a lot of different places. We couldn't hear a message more timely on the cusp, uh, just on the cusp of the finish of the Democratic Convention and the start of the Republican Convention. And perhaps with the new and coming election that we We really need to sit soundly at the king's gate and live for him. I'm not talking about how you vote, unless you're voting your values, but uh, about how we live our lives, where we find our hope, what we invest ourselves into, what we talk about, and how we talk about it, and what kind of an example we live it's interesting in the book of Esther, the Jews, Mordecai, Esther, they're the beautiful people. They're the people that, in a sense, under Mordecai's advice, when he replaces Haman, there is a stability and order that is restored to the empire. That's what we may represent to people who are frightened and uncertain in these difficult and unpredictable days. But we have his word, a sure rock upon which we can stand, and his spirit in our lives to live as the new people of God. God bless you. Love you.